As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the beginning, before Instagram and Snapchat, yes, even before Facebook and Twitter, there was the church signboard. Yes, that primitive analog piece of ecclesiastical hardware, which illuminated the same quick, poor, and pithy phrases of Christian theology, which we now see on the internet, but in 35 plastic characters or less. It's hard to remember a time when I saw one of these signs say anything important, like, I don't know, maybe an announcement. But for all the useful information these signs haven't given me these last many years, at least this week they gave me yet another chance for laughter. A word of advice. If you're ever feeling depressed, just search church signs on Google Images and spend the next half hour rolling in laughter as I did on Thursday when I should have been writing this sermon. Many of these signs are just too risque to mention from the pulpit. Some of them are harsh or contain misspellings or are utterly lacking in an education in innuendo. But there are always, sometimes at least, quite revealing about the churches who post them. For instance, Clay Mill Road Baptist Church had a sign which read, whoever stole our AC units Keep one. It's hot where you're going. <laughs> Providence Presbyterian Church wrote, Our church is like fudge, sweet with a few nuts. Concordia Lutheran Church once posted, Hipster Jesus loved you before you were cool. Or my personal favorite, St. Albans Episcopal Church, who wrote, Christmas Eve Communion Wine, 1986, Chateau Mouton. <laughs> In the words of Stanley Hauerwas, let no pretense go unwasted. But the reason I bring up church signs is because of one I saw just last week, which read, Money is the root of all evil. Now, you might think this a rather innocent quote from Scripture, but it's not. And in many ways, it is more abs absurd than some of the signs I've already mentioned. I mean, who paid for the church sign? Do the bills pay for themselves? Non-givers seem to think so. I heard someone once quip, the early church didn't have vestries and budgets, to which I added, well, the early church didn't have central heat and air, but no one seems to mind. Curates. Nothing to lose. So, what do the scriptures say? What do our lessons this morning tell us about wealth and its inevitable end, power? 
For one, as I mentioned, the scriptures do not say that money is the root of all evil, but that the love, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So let's start there. It is sometimes thought among Christians that money, or for that matter, power or technology, is an ideologically neutral force, a means which possesses no value of its own, but is simply a tool towards which man can bring about either good or evil. But this view, I think, has no basis in the scriptures. St. Augustine tells us that evil, in its essence, is not contrary to good. Evil is not an equal and opposite force. It isn't a dark side. Evil, in fact, has no being of its own, but is by definition the deprivation of good, as darkness is the deprivation of light. We know from the accounts of Genesis that God created all that is and called it very good. But it doesn't seem that God created the Federal Reserve or even the Roman coin, and certainly not taxes. So if God did not create money, what basis does it have for being called good or evil or neutral? Actually, it seems that money, or economics, which is the word people use when they don't want to talk about money, has the potential to be quite an act of worship and adoration to God. Money, I think, is the co-opting of man to God's original creation. It is a byproduct of God's commandment to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and steward. It is not an ideologically neutral force, but has its basis in the good. Like how a work of art imitates the beauty of a nature scene on canvas, money also imitates the good inherent in God's original creation, except that the medium of money is coin, and its end is an intangible sense of value, worth, and not beauty. For no one gazes at a $20 bill simply because of its aesthetic appeal, but to identify it as a 20 because of what $20 can do and what it can bring. By some mystery of providence, therefore, we must conclude that God created everything that exists with an innate value, that he invites us into that invaluating, if you will, as his supreme creatures, and that he has given us the freedom and diversity of spirit to place value on some things differently than other people may. Just look at eBay. A thousand dollars for a baby carrier? I'm not sure if that's Christian freedom or disordered love, but you can ask my wife. But if you doubt this notion of relative value, I will refer you to the Sermon on the Mount, which is, among other things, an economic treatise. Blessed are the poor, it begins. Jesus says in it, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Conclusive proof of the point, I hope, that value is real and relative, though it is never absent and is often absolutely inviolable, as in human life. Yet, like most of our loves, this value, this good which we are all reaching towards, is terribly disordered. It has not become something else. It has not lost its sense of striving towards the good, towards pleasure, towards Eden. But it has lost its direction by way of deprivation. And this is a reality we all recognize whenever we hear of someone spending $200 on flip-flops or dropping a mill on a Bugatti Veyron, or spending almost a quarter of a billion on a football stadium when those among us are without even the most basic needs. I'm just kidding. Jesus loved the Colosseum. We all know that our loves and the loves of our fellow men are disordered, and that the inherited consequence of this disorder is death. What do the hedonists say? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And death, I think, is really at the root of it. A point the lectionary does well to point the finger on this morning. The prophet Amos remarks, O you that put far away the evil day and bring near a reign of violence. What is the evil day other than death? The Psalter also reads, Put not your trust in rulers, nor in any child of earth, for there is no help in them. When they breathe their last, they return to earth, and in that day, their thoughts perish. This refrain about vanity is one which the wisdom literature of the Old Testament continually observes. And it is brought to life again by Jesus in the form of a parable, our Lucan Gospel reading. The first thing which ought to strike our attention in this passage is the great measure of wealth the rich man in the story has. He is a rich man in the words of the text, clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted scrumptuously every day. Like not a few bishops I've met, though usually these men are the epitome of godliness and charity, usually. Donning the purple, as it has been called since ancient times, is not simply a symbol of wealth, but of position. It means you are a lord, someone with power and authority, and hopefully, therefore, trust. Yet, as with all things, this trust is a good subject to deprivation, and one which, like the ring of power in Tolkien's novels, is treacherous in its deceit and sense of life-giving power. For when we do well, we think it is we who do it. And when we suffer, we blame God. 
the exact opposite of what St. Benedict bids us and his monastics to do in his godly rule. The essence of this deprived trust at its root is idolatry. That is, the myth of self-sufficiency, life apart from blessing God, life apart from thankfulness. But even this thankfulness has its end, the end we all will face, death. When Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, which, by the way, was included in God's universal declaration of goodness in the beginning, they, in a sense, usurped the relative value of God for currency, that is, for a thing which represented something else, a value, the knowledge of good and evil, as Genesis calls it, an end in itself without reference to God. And deprivation was thus sown throughout creation. Since that day, man has striven to somehow avoid death by means of, among other things, wealth. Today, it's something like cryogenic freezing accounts left in escrow. But it's all, in essence, the same standing reserve of goods that it has always been. It is towards this end that Jesus said to the man who stored up so much grain in the storehouse, Fool, do you not know this night your life is required of you? And this is perhaps a good place to rest for the moment, since all that I'm about to say is predicated on the reality of life hereafter. The man in Jesus' parable dies perhaps in some shock, as he doesn't experience a good return on his investments. The market hereafter is no good for his type, as it values different things. Things of real value, like that man licking up the scraps from the table. But if there is no life hereafter, if the hedonists are right, then we all very well should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will truly die. But if the hedonists are wrong, then maybe, just maybe, we should listen to Jesus. All this to say, either Christianity is true and virtue has some resonance in this world, or else it is false and we should all live like devils. If all that matters is our own perpetual economic increase, then, I don't know, maybe we should repackage toxic mortgages and sell them off to banks, or commit usury in the form of payday loans to the already impoverished. But if something else does matter, if something matters even more than wealth and the personal avoidance of suffering, then that thing ought to take priority above all else. Our readings this morning, I would like to suggest to you, seem to say, something else does matter more. And that is the judgment of the divine economy. The reality of man's equality to man as a being created in the image of God, and the necessity for that belief to manifest itself in real life. 
and the pursuit of a reasonable condition for all people. This is perhaps the hidden irony in Jesus' story, that in some way, even burning in Hades, the rich man is trying to make a deal, first for himself and then for his next of kin. But what deal can be made hereafter? What have we left to trade? It is therefore for this life that we must devote, in the words of the prayer book, our alms and oblations, or better yet, in this life with reference to the next, in the fear of the Lord of both. This seems to me to be the well-measured conclusion of our epistle and the apostolic church. Do not be greedy. You cannot serve both God and mammon, but you can serve God by your wealth. The book of Acts gives a remarkable example of the post-Pentecostal church. It reads, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't know your church, but let me ask you, are there needs here? Now, don't get the idea that I'm actually suggesting we imitate the apostolic church, because actually I am. But maybe not in the way you think it. Some have supposed throughout Christian history that this passage stands in utter philosophical opposition to the very notion of private property and possessions and, by extension, wealth. Anglicanism, as much as we can define such a thing, has never affirmed it so. The 39 Articles of Religion state squarely in Article 38, the riches and goods of Christians are not common, as touching the right, title, and possession of the same, as certain Anabaptists do falsely boast. Notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesseth, liberally give alms to the poor according to his ability. Now let's read a portion of the Acts passage again. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In both the articles and the Acts of the Apostles, there is a curious tension between right, title, and almsgiving, which we now call charity. But I think, in fact, in each of these texts, we get to a proper summation of Christian teaching and virtue. The Christians of Acts did not consider their possessions their possessions. But nowhere does the text say 
that they were not truly theirs by way of ownership or title. In fact, many lay down their property and give the proceeds to the apostles. But how can they do so if it's not theirs to sell? And if money is to be reprehensible? The point is this. Christian stewardship is to own your possessions, but not to let your possessions own you. Be always ready to give to those in need. If someone asks for a little, little, give a lot in the name of God, in whom we say we put our trust. For it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.